You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. My name is Peter Betke. I am the director of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at George Mason University's Mercatus Center. And I'm here talking today with Professor Alain Marciano of the University of Montpellier, uh, where Alain is also the scientific director of the Montpellier Research Institute in Economics. Um, Alain is is, uh, currently finishing up on a biography uh, intellectual biography on, on James Buchanan and has done a lot of work here in the archives. Uh, welcome, uh, Alan. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. Yeah. So I wanted to start by just asking you a little bit about the, the Buchanan project on, and sort of two different levels. Uh, one of them is just to give the, the, re, the listeners a sort of a sense of the state, because this is a uh, the state of the of the the, the materials, um, because a lot of people don't know about the state of the materials. You've been involved in working with these materials for over a decade, really, I think, or close to a decade, right? More and than a so you had uh, old archives in the Buchanan House, uh, which you worked with, and now you have the library that has done a job. And maybe you could just explain a little bit about the difference between the two regimes and and whatnot. Yes, uh, actually I've been working on the archives uh, since 2007, so it's more than a decade. So yeah. uh, it was, at that time the papers were located in Buchanan House, as you know, So, and they were located in different places, including the elevator shaft <laughs> and the basement, which was a bit, uh, which explains the, that some of the papers now are a bit beaten at the edges. Uh, so it was a bit of a mess, if you allow me, and uh, it was difficult to uh, find out what was written in which order, so there were a lot of holes. So myself, uh, I think it's, uh, <laughs> I have to say that I've been victim of that, in the sense that doing the archives, I probably missed some of the papers that were, because they were not, uh, no, have not been processed, right. so they were uh, mixed up. And uh, so you were working, let's say, on a paper on 1962. Probably you missed something because it was in a folder located in the basement or elsewhere. Who knows? Uh, I don't know who had been in the archives at that time, but not so many people probably. Uh, And yes, you had the kindness to involve me in the project with Solomon Stein at some point and I saw all the people process that and now I am looking at the archives that are almost uh, completely processed. Uh, I say almost because I think that uh, there is not problems but some improvements possible in the directories and the list of uh, papers but uh, of material but now the difference is huge. I mean, working on the archives, even when I started to work with Solomon, I don't remember exactly when it was, probably three or, f- three or four years ago. Even three or four years ago, it was not like it is now. 
So now it's huge, the difference is tremendous. And it's really comfortable, uh, besides the fact that the people at the library are very nice, that it's very comfortable to work on the archives because it's ordered, you can find so the, the sheet directory sheets, so you can find the, 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 the papers, you, the, the are in folders. So now I think that uh, it's easier, it's more comfortable, it's impossible to miss papers, it's impossible to miss letters. So and I think that uh, someone who it's very different to work on the canon now than it. I mean, yeah. uh, in terms of archives, it's very yeah. different to work on the canon now than it has been in. Uh, I said, as I said, five years ago. Yeah. So, I'm hoping that our uh, students and others. Um, will take advantage of this opportunity because um, I'll come back to this in a second. I do think that, uh, so I moved to George Mason in 1998 and um, I, uh, you know, taught inside the Buchanan House um, because I took over Jim's uh, course in constitutional political economy. And um, I also worked in some of those, you know, archives I had over the years, graduate students that worked in the processing of the photos. Remember how that little computer out in the front, they had all the photos digitized that were there and, and whatnot. But it was more of a, a working office and memorabilia rather mm -hmm. than an idea of a working archive. I had myself uh, worked in the archives for Hayek and uh and some other things out at hoover and knew about the idea about and the london school of economics and understood about the idea of finding aids and things like that and so in the old days when you were working in it you know sonia amade worked i think a little bit in it steve metama visited a little bit ross emmett david levy sandra pert uh, myself uh you kind of discovered what it is that was already known because the finding aid was Joanne uh, and you would go and say, hey, where's that? And she would say this or going back further, it'd be Betty. And one of the things that was really amazing to me was the fact that Betty's papers were never processed until the library got involved at all. So her office was, and she was the source of everything really for all the information in Charlottesville and in, in Blacksburg and in, in, in um, uh, Fairfax. And so uh, it really is a, an opening up. And the reason why I think this is so uh, phenomenally rich archives and what we can thank the librarians here at George Mason now for doing and making this project really, uh, you know, the way it is, is that uh, Buchanan, and I, I'd like your reaction to this. I, I'm pretty sure you'll agree with me. Uh, Buchanan never allowed himself, uh, he was always an outlier, out, outsider, but he had an insider's claim. And so he never thought of himself as a, as a like an outsider of the economics profession so he wanted to engage the economics profession at a very basic level of theoretical conceptualizations of the field of public finance but also in price theory and the in in things like cost and choice and also in uh like fundamental methodology of economics uh pushing for an exchange view of of economics or even for that matter fields like law and economics as well besides public choice and and political economy and so to me i think that there's a record inside of that archive of a counterfactual of what 20th century economics could have looked like right and that that is really quite fascinating for this for potential scholars i think because it's not like he was working in isolation from the mainstream but he's working in 
distinction from the mainstream, but with a constant push at the mainstream to, for them to pay attention. So as, as, as you've talked about other times, like his attempt to engage Samuelson wasn't like a fanboy to Samuelson at the same time. It wasn't like, oh, you're not, whatever you're doing is worthless kind of thing. It was a way to kind of negotiate the conversation with him. And I was wondering yeah. if you could comment a little bit on, you know, the kind of Buchanan substance of what's in the archives. Uh, yes, just one word to react and uh, follow up on what you just said. Not only on, uh, about Samuelson, but about all the others. I mean, when you look at the archives, when you read the correspondence, you find a lot, a lot of letters, Buchanan writing to, uh, especially in the 60s, more in the 60s than in the 50s, maybe because he felt more involved in the profession, more um, an insider. I, I will come back on that. Uh, but even in the 50s, so... Uh, every time he disagreed or he was puzzled by something who had been written by uh, someone else, he wrote a comment. Yeah. So uh, it was one of his things to write comments. So, uh, and another point is that Earl Hamilton, who was the editor of the JPE at the, uh, in, the, in the 50s, knew Buchanan from Chicago and he sent him a lot of books to review. So Buchanan wrote a lot of book reviews. So this is part of his way of doing economics, uh, reacting to what others were doing. So he wrote a lot of book reviews. He wrote uh, he wrote a, a lot of letters to other scholars, not only Samuelson. So Samuelson is the most remarkable because now Samuelson. So he was already at that time a golden boy, the golden boy. Right. Editor. But it now uh, is even more famous than in uh, '54. But before that, he wrote to Rolf. Uh, uh, about the uh, incidence uh, taxation theory of incidence in taxation, in so he was he disagreed with Rolf, but he wrote to him to uh, engage in the, the discussion. He wrote to Musgrave also in the at the same period, 55, 56, before going to Italy. He wrote to Musgrave and he disagreed with Musgrave. So and the fact that he disagreed with Musgrave on certain points didn't prevent him to uh, write Musgrave, write Samuelson, write Rolf. Uh, so, and you see that all the time during the, the 50s and the 60s, I focus mainly in, in this period, and also in the 70s. But after the 70s, it's a bit different because he had the network, he knew a lot of people, much more people than the 50s. But part of his way of doing economics was to exchange with others. And as you rightly said, uh, I'm not sure he ever felt, at least in the 50s and the 60s, he didn't see himself as uh, an outsider. Uh, he was an economist. He was an economist, and uh, uh, he was no less an economist than Samuelson or Musgrave, even if their approaches were different. And I'm not sure he felt that they were different, but even if, or Arrow, for instance. Uh, he was an economist like them, so he didn't see him as an outsider. So he wanted to be part of the, the, the economic debate in terms of s science, in terms of policy implications, in terms of uh, policy recommendations. So he was involved in that. Uh, what is significant also in that, in that regard is the, 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 the summer he spent at the Rand Corporation. So when he arrived at the Rand Corporation, he was not so sure that it could be helpful to these people. And when he, he was visiting consultant at the summer and during the summer of 1954, and there were a lot of people. There were Samuelson there, Arrow, 
uh, Lindblom, Alchan, uh, and well, the list is long, is long yeah. like that. So uh, he spent the summer discussing with these people, writing to them, and discussing uh, writing reports, memos. So it was part. I mean, it was part of his way of doing economics. So and I think that this is something that you really uh, grasp when you look at the archives. Uh, I don't know there there are 70 boxes of yeah. letters. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> don't know if it uh, completely answer your question, but I think that no, no, the, 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 yeah. the the archives gives really give you this impression that uh, there is a lot of material because Buchanan was uh, uh, trying to imply himself to involve himself in the, yeah. the functioning of the profession. I mean, there's 192 at the at moment. There's 192 linear feet. Yeah. of archives it's huge archive and uh it's an amazing uh testimony i think to actually not only uh buchanan but also to uh betty tillman in making sure that she maintained all of that correspondence over the years and and uh, and whatnot so it is a pretty uh, phenomenal project actually there's so much to uh, learn in that uh, i wanted to sort of uh, uh push you a little bit on to discuss you have a recent paper that just that came out on uh buchanan public finance of the tennessee years and i want to so begin with the beginning uh so buchanan gets his phd uh moves to tennessee as his first job and he's working in public finance and so that's kind of his beginning of his career and um he starts writing the papers that become his seminal papers that create his career beginning in 49 as my colleague Dick Wagner has emphasized but also then again in 54 but besides that he's doing a lot of very just basic applied economics and you've unearthed a lot of that and and those debates so maybe you could comment a little bit on that uh, yeah I yes because I was interested so I did as all the people who uh, read Buchanan do I start with, as you said, a seminal paper in 1949, the Pure Theory of Government Finance. And so I read this paper. Uh, I was lucky to find the original version of the <laughs> paper, yeah. which is much longer. Actually, so uh, it's not so different. It's much longer. Uh, one of the referees was Milton Friedman. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's interesting because when you look at the original, the first preliminary version, uh, there are equations in it. So we have the impression when you read the, uh, when we read the, the published version, there are no equations. So and a lot of uh, let's say philosophical references give the impression that Buchanan was interested in doing uh, something very different from what the other economists were doing. But actually, his first move had been to do something very uh, I'm not going to say neoclassical, but something very standard with equation ratios of marginal utilities and so Friedman told him to remove that because it was wrong so <laughs> <laughs> so I think that it's interesting so he removed that and the paper remains at it is but I realized after that that it was not Buchanan's first paper so he had a, a previous paper published earlier in 1949 on the marginal pricing marginal price uh, applied to uh, railroad, railroad uh, tariffs so because it was a very important problem for the southern economy or the economy of the south but what i was interested in is what he wrote before 
So uh, not only his dissertation, but some of the papers he wrote when he was a student. Uh, and I found, so one of the papers, the papers about the Tennessee years uh, the, the you mentioned, is a paper about one of his essays that he wrote before he went to Chicago, so before the war. And uh, it was about, so it was, it's really simple, but at the same time, there is a very interesting, there are two interesting ideas in it. One is that, uh, and Buchanan will stick to this idea a very long time, that the users of public goods have to pay the prices for the goods they use. And in that case, it's applied to, uh, to roads and the price of roads. So the user of roads have to pay the price for the road services. Uh, and also, there is also a, a point which is interesting, is that the, the, the reference to ethics in terms of repartition, because the idea is how to, re to, to distribute the benefit of the, the taxes. So the taxes are perceived by the, the, the state, but th they have to be redistributed uh, to the county, the counties, because the roads are managed by the counties. So how do you split the benefit of the taxes? And Buchanan uh, thought that the, the benefit of the taxes should be split uh, uh, on ethical terms. So it means that for me it was important because it was 1940, and this is something that never changed in his career. The the reference to ethics, the the role of ethics in the in the in the distribution in some sense in distribution of income yeah. among different uh, agents. Yeah, and so that's a different origin story than either Marianne Johnson or even uh, you know Dick Wagner tells in his book because you have a lot of these themes prior to him supposedly reading Vixel in the Harper Library at the end or having. Uh, but how about the 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 night story about how he comes into Chicago as a kind of a, a socialist and then he has night and then night sort of enlightens him or whatever. Uh, explain what you found uh, in the archives about that. Uh, just a remark about the Vixel. Actually, yes, Marion Johnson and Dick Wagner, I think, uh, already emphasized the fact that there, there is no epiphany. The, the so-called epiphany that he t yeah. talked about in the, the Nobel reception right. lecture. Uh, I don't know why he mentioned that or uh, he forged that story, but there is no epiphany. But the, they, so they had emphasized that they uh, read Vixel for his, his dissertation, but the, the, the main part of his dissertation is based on something in which he was interested before having read Vixel. Right. Uh, and it's, for me, it's the same thing with Knight. So uh, Buchanan, the story you mentioned, he arrived at Chicago in uh, January '46, and then he attends uh, Knight's classes and uh, becomes a Knighton. So the part which is true is that he was probably, quote-unquote, a socialist before uh, coming to Chicago. At least he was relatively in favor of the strong intervention of the state. So. But uh, arriving at Chicago, he has lectures with, and I think that the first professor he had who influenced him was not Knight, but Simons. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a, uh, I think it can be assumed relatively uh, firmly. It was Simons who uh, uh, taught him during the spring semester uh, from January to March or April. I don't know if it's a spring semester, but... Uh, first three months of uh, 1946, it was Simons who taught him 
uh, public finance. And uh, I think that this course has a tremendous importance for Buchanan. It was this course that changed his views on the free market and the free enterprise and uh, the idea that you have to have that there were two dimensions that Simons emphasized the free market in economy and uh, decentralized political systems system these are the two dimensions that Buchanan uh, emphasized also in his uh, graduate student uh, mm -hmm. essays and in his dissertation uh, you have to have at the same time the economy which is uh, that has to function on as a on a free market and uh, the the state that has to be decentralized, mm -hmm. and this I think that when he arrived at uh, Chicago, it was uh, the relatively in favor of a centralized economy. So this is what changed, and then after that he had uh, Knight. Uh, probably after S Simons died, uh, he had Knight uh, during the uh, summer of 1946, yeah. and then. At I'm not sure that Knight really influenced him at that time. Well, I cannot really prove that, but I'm not sure. The, the Knight's influence came later. Yeah. But it's a, a, maybe it's too revisionist. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring up Knight and come back to Knight in a second, but I wanted to uh, first um, uh, see if you could just maybe say a few words about uh, what I think uh, is a very brilliant paper that you've written um, and has been justly awarded uh, a best paper award, um, which is on your paper that's in the history of political economy on uh, basically the education of a constitutional political economist. And I would like you to, uh, if you can, just say a few words about the, that paper and, um, and uh, the lessons that you learned as a scholar yourself in seeing Buchanan's learning uh, in the development of his research program. That it, it, well, it was a paper that uh, took, took us because it's co-authored with a friend, uh, Jean-Baptiste Fleury. It was a paper that took us a long time to write because it was, was a bit tricky for various reasons. One of the reasons was that uh, it involved what Buchanan had written in 1959 during the so-called mass massive resistance in Virginia. And therefore, it involved a lot of uh, uh, issues with uh, segregation and desegregation. Um, what I've learned is so that maybe three things. Um, I try not to forget the three things that I want to <laughs> to emphasize. First is Buchanan as a positive economist. I think that so this is something that is probably uh, too frequently misunderstood. Uh, when Buchanan said, uh, it's, the, it's the 1959 paper on positive and normative economy. So Buchanan said, I am a positive economist, uh, but I make a normative statement. <laughs> and I think that this normative statement does not prevent him to be a positive economist. So he makes a normative statement by saying that, he, by giving this definition of being uh, positive. But is he remains a positive economist in the sense that he doesn't try to uh, uh, impose his own views, or at least he thinks that he is not trying to impose his own views on what should be done. Uh, in that case, it's in 
uh, education and segregation. So I think it's important because it gives the idea that Buchanan didn't want to impose anything on the on the others. What he wanted to do was to define a, a frame, or could say a constitutional frame, but it didn't use the word. Uh, it tried to define a frame that allowed many people to uh, live their lives. Didn't want to be coercive. So this is the this is the first the first point. The second point is about uh, well, it's more about the methodology and the methodolo methodology of history of uh, economics in the sense that um, when we wrote the paper, we tried to stick to the what was written, trying not to fill the gaps when there were gaps and trying not to over-interpret what uh, could be uh, interpreted. Yeah. Um, so it's, uh, uh, it's very tricky because the issue, the issue is very sensitive and it, we tend to judge it with our views, I mean, the, the views of uh, our times. So saying that imposing our frame frame of the beginning of the 21st century to what was happening uh, 60 years ago it's probably a mistake so I think that we had to and this is one of the reasons for which I think it's interesting to look in the archives because it tend to uh, oblige us not to be too um, rationalist not to reconstruct too much what was happening we have the archives, so we have to stick to what we disciplined. Have. Yes, yes, it disciplines ourselves, mm -hmm. and this is also related to the third point: the fact that uh, the the archives may may be tricky, also because we we might be tempted to overinterpret what we have. So the archives, the the letters are interesting because uh, they lead us to stick to the reality in some sense uh, but at the same time we must not over interpret what are in the letters for instance if we find a letter saying something we have to think that maybe the letter was written strategically yeah. maybe it was written for a certain purpose we don't know what the purpose was so the, it's interesting to have this letter because it gives us it gives us some information but on the other hand uh, the information that we get from this letter m might be problematic. Mm -hmm. So we have to be very careful. So this is something that... So the lessons I, I, I received, I, I got from writing this paper were about Buchanan, his attitude towards the public debate and the kind of uh, intolerance. I know that some people are not going to <laughs> like that, but I think that uh, that's one of the letters about him, uh, the, the lessons about him, his tolerance, and well, it's related to his constitutional approach. Right. And another lesson, or the two other lessons, uh, are methodological, about what we have to do as uh, historians of economics, of economic thought. Well, I think that the paper is a, is a brilliant uh, exposition of that. Um, in reading the universal uh, case, I mean, so there's a couple things that I, I just want to sort of uh, maybe we can talk a little bit about. One of them is, is that, the paper itself that was written in 1959 is, is authored by Nutter and Buchanan, which is different from Buchanan 
and Nutter. And so I was wondering whether or not in the archives you had come across other examples where Buchanan was the second author not alphabetical. <laughs> so that and what that might mean. Um, the other thing is is that in that piece, which I think has been very, uh, I might be guilty of reading too much in because again Buchanan was my teacher and and I read in a lot of his values from 1984 when I first encountered him as a person uh, back into you know things that might have been going on. But when I read that paper, um, one of the things that sticks out for me in the beginning is the unequivocal statement in the beginning that we're one another's equal, right? Uh, and that we have to treat one another as one another's equals. That uh, education is the great leveler, right? He was a, a, a defender of public education in the sense that it's the great educator. That's why it's called universal education. Um, and that uh, he's going to have standards established for education, so the, mm. the, the vouchers aren't going to go to any school. It has to be a school that meets the standards of education because education is the vehicle for the great levelers for the least advantage in society, which who, who he's trying to uh, reach out to. And he believes in redistribution. The way he's going to finance the educational system is um, that he's going to have redistributive taxation in order to do that so that the wealthy... Um, and the last thing he wants the school system to do is reinforce the elite uh, of society. So, uh, so the interpretation of this essay are, is often uh, very confusing to me because all of those positions are, in fact, the positions that Buchanan spends a large part of his life uh, arguing for. In fact, to the great, uh, to great disapproval of a lot of libertarian uh, people that didn't, you know, thought he was not, and he took great joy in arguing with libertarians about these positions, I will tell you. Um, but um, uh, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a kind of a fascinating thing how he has this. And so the way I see that is the, what you just um, uh, articulated was, is that on one hand, you make a distinction between the production of a public good and then, uh, you know, the delivery of the public good. Um, and so he would argue that education is a public good in many ways, but that, and that's why this, the, the voucher system is involved there, but you don't need necessarily the, the uh, state to be the producer because you could have the schools be produced by private entities, but the state is financing the, the production of the public good uh, 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 of this. And so you have a, a financing is different from the, or the, the production is different from the uh, distribution of the, of the good. And, um, and this is an important part in a lot of his other discussions about, um, you know, public goods as well, I would say. And, and, and just to bring this back to the 49 paper, I always thought one of the key things in the 49 paper was that uh, we cannot do public finance unless we also postulate a theory of the state. And in postulating the theory of the state, you have to postulate the scale and scope of what the state is involved in doing. And so being able to understand the scale and scope is also going to be a function of being able to understand this issue having to do with the production and distribution of the public good. Um, because that changes the nature of a kind of, so um, maybe you can just say a few words about that, because I think I'd like us to move on to, to the democracy and night and those kind of questions. But I just wanted to, to hit this point, because I think it's such a, a critical point within 
the actual economics of the e economics of universal education in addition to the constitutional point about who's responsible for producing what when and and where which is the federalist position which is a different point yeah. it's a di different point and our, all the points you mentioned are, are totally exact of course and uh, uh, equally important i one of the important points is the, the point about uh, the equality of treatment uh, buchanan has defended very early in his career the idea of an equal treatment of equals uh, and actually it's not an idea that uh, it's not his idea uh, 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 it's an idea that you find in a lot of uh, writings in the 19th century. Uh, the, the, the names uh, evades me right now, but uh, I think that even Pigou mentioned the need to have an equal treatment, uh, yeah. treatment of equals. So it's not so original. Buchanan, at that time when he wrote his dissertation, he, he, he knew that it was not original, but uh, he knew that it was also a, a criterion that was not so um, uh, frequently used. So he reintroduced this idea of an equal treatment of equals, and it has been the basis of his, I would say, philosophy for a long time. And this is why this is what justifies his focus on redistribution. Yeah. So you rightly mentioned is the importance of redistribution for Buchanan. He, he has always been, for me, one of his major uh, claims has been to uh, promote redistribution. He was in favor of redistribution. He has always been in favor of redistribution from the beginning of his career. And not only in favor of redistribution, but the idea that there should be a redistribution from the rich to the poor, uh, from the rich, rich states states to the poor states from the rich people to yeah. the poor people so um i don't know or you can twist that or you can misinterpret that but i think that it's uh, for me it's a very it's a very noble uh statement because it's very it's and even even put that in, in before efficiency so uh in 1952 we had an exchange with scott about the question of efficiency of the of grants uh, and Scott disagreed with grants because they were against efficiency mm -hmm. uh, because uh, grants prevented the move of resources to the places where they would bring the the, the, the most uh, uh, important uh, value and Buchanan reacted by, by saying uh, part, part of his argument was that efficiency was not granted and ethics what do you say about ethics the ethics of allowing people who live in poor area to benefit from the same level as people living in a rich area so uh, i think that uh, he felt concerned by that because uh, he, he lived in a poor area of course but there is it's more than that when you read his articles he, there is he mentions the south only once so most of the time he used the term poor states. He doesn't refer to the redistribution from the north to the south. It's a redistribution from the poor, the rich to the poor states. Uh, so it's a, it's very important for in terms. Of in 1959, it was about education. Before right. it had, it had roads. been a roads, yeah. roads and highways. Yeah. It was exactly the same thing. Right. So it's. Uh, really yeah. a central point is in his analysis. No, I think that that's right. I mean, that's one of the, it's a public finance point. 
is yes. what he's making, but a public finance from a certain perspective. One of the things that I think I've become acutely aware of, because it's hard sometimes when you are a student of somebody, um, you adopt a lot of the tacit ideas of them, and you just sort of, that's what you do, because you know, part of it is just learning under them, and other part is also the homo studenomicus aspect, which is I want to pass the right essays that he's going to give me good grades on, so I need to write kind of what he thinks, and so you just tacitly adapt these things. But what I've learned recently is that Buchanan does put a lot of burden on his on his reader because he's a Vixellian in both the benefit principle and in the unanimity. He's a Knightian in terms of the uh, basic economics as well as uh, so you know uh, sort of his, his economics is is economics it's sort of knight and simon's kind of economics but at the same time he's also knight puzzling with the problems of social costs the problems of collective action uh, basically intelligence and democratic action and this commitment fundamental commitment to democracy which is throughout knight's position as well and if you don't understand any of if you miss any one of those constituent parts of what makes up Buchanan, you end up by missing the picture of what he's up to because you miss out like why it is that he wants to see politics as exchange or why is it he wants to have certain, you know, threshold rules uh, that protect, uh, you know, from exploitation uh, in the political process. So you can have political externalities as well as you can have uh, market externalities. Mm -hmm. And so you got to worry about the political externalities, which is what he's obsessed with um, in terms of the, the calculus of consent in many ways. So anyway, it's just it's uh, the work that you're doing on that and the education of a constitutionalist and bringing up these kind of uh, positions, especially with these technical public economics, I just think is very, very valuable. So I want to congratulate you. you on that work. Um, I did want to sort of raise this issue. Of, we've talked a little bit about it, but I want to ask you a question next and just about Buchanan. It, it is, this is a little later, Buchanan and Knight, and in particular uh, Knight on this democracy and liberalism aspect. And from that then, how you see the relationship between Hayek and Buchanan, if there is one. Um, do you have anything to to uh, uh, say about that? Uh, well, Buchanan, um, as I said earlier, I think that Buchanan became a Knighton relatively slowly. Be Knight's ideas permeated, and and progressively Buchanan discovered that they were important. He knew that they were important, but maybe he was concerned by other questions before becoming uh, really a Knighton, before be realizing oh, focusing on democracy was so important even for economists. Uh, he realized that, uh, I think, for me, he realized that the importance of uh, political institutions for economists very early, as you said, 1949, you cannot do public finance finance if you are not do not have a theory of the state. Uh, but he really wrote about that a bit uh, a bit later and realized the importance of democracy for yeah. for for economists uh, uh, later. But uh, at the same time, I mean, in the mid fifties, when Arrow wrote his book, when Dahl and Lindblom wrote their book, so it was in the beginning of public choice uh, before public uh, choice, <laughs> public choice <laughs> before Downs, yeah. before Downs, before uh, Tarok. It was earlier yeah. than that. Uh, yes, I was going to mention something about uh, 
anyway, so sorry. No, uh, so, I mean, when you go into the archives, you haven't gotten to this part of the story yet um, because you're talking about the technical economics and then its interface with uh, political science, right, in some sense, including political theory. But um, by the time he recamps to Virginia, and uh, you had the wonderful opportunity of visiting University of Virginia this week, um, and, he, and they found the Thomas Jefferson Center, and the archives reveal that. They have a, a he and Nutter have a kind of a strong commitment to see a reclaiming of classical economics in some sense, as against the technocracy of uh, the utilitarians, the engineers uh, kind of idea of economics. And so that's part of this education of the political economists as well. And I was wondering if you could, because that's what the relationship I meant about Hayek. And so Hayek writes the Constitution of Liberty in 1960, but he's presenting all those papers from the road to serfdom to that time. That's part of the, the milieu that, that, that Buchanan is, is running in. So there must be something about that that's there for him as well. But have you found any strong evidence on that? Uh, no strong evidence, but uh, once again, a conviction. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, a conviction that, uh, I, I, as I said just before, there is something that is happening, yes, before the Thomas Jefferson Center, around the mid-50s. Aro has written his book in the early 50, yeah. 50s, 51, but Buchanan has the opportunity to review the book only in 53. So I I haven't found anything about the fifty why fifty three, but probably Hamilton sent him the book to review in fifty three. So Buchanan wrote the review at the beginning of fifty four. At that time, he had also read Dahl and Lindbergh, and you see. So I see a difference. It's not very difficult to 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 perceive because you just have to read the references in the published work, and the published works show a difference in the references when you look at the paper, for instance, the two papers he, write, he, he wrote in 19, 1954. The first is a review of uh, Arrow's book, and the second is uh, the, the comparison between in, uh, voting and the market. In the mm, book review of Arrow's, uh, he refers to Michael Polanyi's book. Mm -hmm. That's that's all, more or less. The rest of the references are more classical there is Dahlen and Lindblom but and when you look at the second paper uh, there are references to Mises references to Hayek um, so the the perspective is totally different yeah and I think that this is the year uh, that changes everything 1954 Buchanan Buchanan's per perspective changes at that time mm -hmm. so when, when you say that in '57, uh, with Nutter, he had, they had uh, a view that was a bit uh, different. They insist they insist when they create the Thomas Jefferson Center on the, the need to go back to classical uh, political economy. The change in Buchanan was already at work uh, before, uh, not uh, far before, but a few years before. Before he went to Italy, I don't know yet if uh, things have. Yeah. Things that happened in Italy that uh, have uh, 
pushed him further in this direction that I think that the real changes occurred before that. And my intuition is that uh, Dahl and Lindblom's book played an important role in this process okay. because this book, their book is very so it's a thick book with a lot of references in particular references to Hayek, to Mises, to Polanyi, to these kind of authors yeah. that Buchanan started to read at about the same period, or to read more, it and, and at least to refer to. Yeah. So the change to classical uh, liberalism, So, and it makes sense to assume that it was then that he really became a Nietzschean, because right. maybe it was at that time that he remembered the <laughs> Knight's teachings. Right. When you look at the Buchanan's notes, uh, lecture notes of uh, Knight's course in 19, uh, June 1946, you realize that everything is there, but yeah, we realize that now, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. after having read what Buchanan has written. So maybe that Buchanan in 1946 didn't realize the importance. He was just, yes, he was just taking notes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so he was he was concerned by uh, public finance in the south, right. how to redistribute uh, income to poor states. Right. So he was not really concerned by big issues about democracy. And this came progressively. It took a few years, but uh, in 1957, maybe that discussing with Nutter uh, had him to. Um, switched to a different perspective but yeah. I think that 55, 56 uh, the, there was a change that occurred in Buchanan's mind. I was just thinking as you were talking that um, one of the things that's very interesting about Buchanan that makes him somewhat foreboding to a lot of people is that um, you know he he did try to think about these big questions but he always thought about them uh, guided by a certain version of economic modeling Right, so like he would he would be very comfortable um, using a, a basic economic reasoning to then try to tackle a very hairy political philosophical question, you know. Even think about like models that I don't know how much you'll talk about them later on in your book, or maybe that will be after. But like the Samaritan's dilemma, you know, paper and things like that. It's like the brilliance of it. It's it's captured in an older essay, a very late essay by him on the the simple analytics of natural liberty where he like just plays with various different economic models of what it would mean in the the Adam Smith's deer and beaver model if you had these little shifts of that or the other thing and that's how his mind worked and so unless you kind of get into that game with him you're not really understanding what's going on and it, it, I think it makes it difficult for people that are outside of economics um, or at least outside of a a, a kind of a, a rational choice analytics to sort of see what's going on. Yeah, yeah, but I think that it's difficult for a lot of people, even in economics. Yeah, because his way of thinking was, as you said, it was using very maybe very basic economic thinking, but yeah. strong concepts. And it was interesting in the ideas, in the concepts, much more than in the axiomatics on the analytics of uh, economics. So some people who, who think that it was it was too simple, yeah, it was confusing because it didn't use the the correct uh, concepts. Right. So you found 
So Buchanan, for instance, Buchanan wrote, you mentioned the Samaritan's Dilemma, so the, the analytics of the Samaritan's Dilemma are very simple, but the, 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 the strength of the paper is elsewhere. Right. Uh, yeah. When you look at the externality, the paper on externality is the same thing. A lot of uh, a lot of uh, graphs and a lot of because he, he used a lot of graphs and curves. Right. Uh, but I think that the, the 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 core of the paper is not in the the, the in ratios. That. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's um, um, it's very interesting because I think that Buchanan. Uh, in like cost and choice, the subtitle is uh, like basically inquiry into elements of economic theory or something. And and you know he stressed this idea constantly about uh, sort of the basics and getting the basics right because he thought his colleagues had forgotten the basics. And so even when he makes a kind of normative claim about the role of economics in in education, like what is the what is the justification? for publicly funding of economic education and research. His argument is it's our pedagogical role in communicating the elementary principles of our discipline. And he says our, you know, his colleagues uh, get derailed because they get bored with the elementary principles. And he, the properly trained economists, will never get bored. And so it's always this persistent and consistent application of the economic way of thinking to these various walks of life but then also a recognition of the limits of that, you know, and, and then, you know, so it's a, it's a fascinating exercise that you're working with, yeah. Yes, yes, it's a, well, I think it's fascinating because it's a really what, well, maybe I'm biased, but it's really what economics should be. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's interesting when you compare, for instance, what Samuelson wrote in 54 and what Buchanan wrote on public goods at about the same periods. Uh, of course, uh, Samuelson was already someone with a great reputation, already very skilled in mathematics and this kind of stuff, but you realize that they were not aiming at the same target, the same goal. In some sense, Samuelson was trying to uh, write the most well, his words, the most abstract paper. So the 1954 paper, a paper that uh, played a s such a role in the development of public economics in the 20th century, is what, three page long, four page long? Yeah. And so there is one equation. Yeah. So it takes more equation to explain the paper to students <laughs> in course than they, they yeah. are in the, in the, so you have to reconstruct the paper yeah. to understand what Samuelson meant. And when you read Buchanan, it's totally different. It's mostly its words. So, uh, in 1956, he wrote a paper on roads, and there are very few equations. And uh, so, for me, it's really the pre-problem of social cost. Actually, Cozy's problem of social cost right. was more or less in Buchanan 1956. Oh, yeah. Again, I am biased because I'm writing on Buchanan, and I think that everything is in Buchanan because of that. But Buchanan, so this article was only words, most, mostly words. There are a few equations, but there are words. And so you see uh, two different ways of doing, uh, doing economics. And this is what you said. He was trying to uh, use uh, basic economic reasoning. This doesn't mean that it was uh, it's easy yeah. to, to read. <laughs> it's yeah. not simple at all. 
but uh, he was trying to reason with concepts, not with uh, technical tools. Right. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I agree with you on that. You brought up Coase. Um, uh, the relationship, I, I, I don't, it would take us too long to delve deeply into this because they were colleagues and, you know, and they interacted and the difference between the problem of social costs and the discussions in costs and choice and these kind of things. But I do think it's, it's uh, fascinating in the sense that um, to Buchanan and to Coase, economics naturally bled into law and economics because you're going to, you're, if you don't do welfare economics like the way with a stable social welfare function and you're not going to be the sort of utilitarian engineer, right? Um, you're going to actually do politics as exchange and you're going to look at the institutions within which those exchange takes place. And so you're going to limit yourself to the structural rules of the game. Structure, one of the structural rules of the game, of course, is the law. And you yourself are a law and economics scholar. You're the editor of the European Journal of Law and Economics. And, uh, and, and, and so I wanted to ask you a little bit about that experience and of editing and working in that field. And of the particular type of being like a Buchanan or a Kosian in a field that's dominated more by Posnerians and, and, and whatnot, um, my... Um, uh, the, I'll just give a reference to the to the listeners, which is uh, Buchanan wrote a review of Posner's first edition of his book mm -hmm. on economic analysis law, and the title of it is "Good Economics, Bad Law," and I think that about sums up his position on these things. And if you follow after Coase won the Nobel Prize, Coase himself got in a knockdown, dragout fight with Posner over the methodology of doing law and economics, which in fact resurrects a lot of the same kind of ideas and so there's this con you know conjunction in which Buchanan and Coase are on one side and you have you know Posner and and the vast majority of law and economics and now you're the editor and so you're getting papers submitted all the time uh talk about that a little bit yeah yeah so I think that uh and maybe uh, it comes from Buchanan but I think that there is a, a difference it comes from Coase too there is a difference between two ways of looking at law and uh, economics as disciplines. Uh, law and economics on the one, one hand, and the economic analysis of law. Most of the time, people don't think that there is a difference between them. Uh, one of the first who uh, brought up the, the difference was Coase, uh, probably in the end of the 1990s. I mean, explicitly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because at the end of the, the 70s and in the 80s, Coase has uh, already written about the difference between his approach and Posner's approach. Yeah. I mean, Posner-Becker's approach, which is quite similar. And there's a difference between law and economics, means that uh, we are economists, we take uh, seriously uh, law and institutions into account because economic activities take place in uh, institutional uh, an institutional uh, background um, there's a difference between that and Posner's approach which uses economics as a tool to, to analyze yeah. legal problems so for Coase and for Buchanan I think that uh, economics is uh, essentially defined by its subject matter and then you study what falls within the boundary of this subject matter. 
And this is why Buchanan, opposed to uh, Posner's economic analysis of law, I've written a paper about that, uh, comparing Buchanan and Posner on economic analysis of law. Buchanan invented public choice, but it disagreed. So the he invented the idea that we sh could use economics to analyze political phenomena, but he disagreed with the idea that we should use, we could use economics to analyze legal phenomena. Yeah. Because politics is a kind of economic activity. Politics is exchange. Law is not about exchange. Right. And uh, I think that is very Ayekian. I'm not the only one to think that, but is very Ayekian about law. And Posner and Ayek are very different in terms yeah. of uh, about law. Is very Ayekian in the sense that law emerges for Buchanan. Law emerges uh, from the, 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 the interactions of uh, between individuals. So there is a difference between law and economic and economic analysis of law. And you asked me about, uh, oh, I could leave the... the for me, uh, I'm much more interested in law and economics than in economic analysis of law. But the thing is that most of the papers <laughs> that we receive uh, are about economic yeah. analysis of law because most of what the discipline, what most of what the field is, is uh, economic analysis of law. So we receive interesting articles in economic analysis of law. Uh, I cannot but urge people who think that they are more cogent than Posnerian to submit pa paper <laughs> to, to papers to the journal. But Let that be an invitation, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah I yeah. mean, we are in, well, we are interested in publishing good articles, right. uh, whether in law and economics or economic right. analysis of law. But people should not rely too much on, uh, uh, I would say. Uh, techniques, analytics to analyze legal problem. Yeah. I mean, the, go back to the other editor of the journal, Giovanni Ramello, my, my friends uh, said that uh, uh, law and economics should be comparative. Yeah. Uh, I agree with him. Yeah. Uh, we have to make, to compare institutions rather to really analyze them uh, as if they were uh, ideal right. institutions, which is more like the, what the- Buchanan. Yes. Yeah. No, it's a um I think that um one of my favorite exchanges in law and economics is actually between Buchanan and War and Warren Samuels on the Shoney versus Miller uh campaign, uh, you know, uh Supreme Court case, um, in which you have this problem of cedar rust. Mm -hmm. And um and what's fascinating about it, it's a property rights case, um, it's political economy case. Um, and the role of the status quo is about change. And so it relates to all these issues again. And I was wondering, maybe you just have a few words to say about the relative status of the status quo in Buchanan, which is a, a very subtle issue in his. It goes back to your point about him being unwilling to impose on others, right? Because we have to begin with the here and now rather than just changing however I as a theorist begin with. But maybe you could elaborate that a little bit so that um, listeners could understand that aspect of Buchanan's thinking. Again, uh, this is something. So this is also why I find I find this uh, writing this uh, biography so interesting. This is something that has always been present in Buchanan's work: the idea that we start from something. Uh, we have to start from a, a, a certain point, and then look at the possible changes that we can make from this starting point. This does not mean that he was against, again, we talked about the redistribution. This does not mean that we should not redistribute income or change yeah. the situation. 
But to change the situation, we, are, we have to evaluate the move from wha uh, where we are to where we want to go. And uh, we cannot evaluate this move if we have not a starting point. So the status quo is not something that is uh, absolute, as you said. Yeah. Uh, it's not something that is imposed and cannot change. And again, you look at the second uh, article he wrote in 1954, uh, individual and voting, uh, no, I don't remember, uh, voting and the marketplace. Yeah. He explains that the, you have uh, on the market, there are inequalities. Inequalities in power, not inequalities in freedom. Inequalities in power mean that people, um, some people have more power than others. We can change that. It does not accept that as an absolute. Uh, we can change that. But if we change that, we have to decide that together. Mm -hmm. So it's exactly what you said. So we can change any situation. He also said that, wrote that in many articles. So you can see that coming in different articles all over his career. So he said, not only after the 1970s, not only in the 70s when, when he was pessimistic, but also in the 60s, also in the 50s, you have to, you have, you have a starting point, you can change, you can do whatever you want as a social group. And you, but you have to do that collectively. Yeah, in agreement. And, uh, yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I have, um, one last set of questions that I want to ask you, which is about the discipline of history of economic thought, of which you are a uh, master practitioner, um, an established scholar in this field, um, and uh, and 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 yet you've seen this field both be sort of uh, in many ways uh, grown tremendously over the last twenty years. The number of people that go to HES meetings have expanded. History of Economic Society meetings have expanded tremendously. Um, yet at the same time, it's still very difficult to have other economists uh, in our field pay attention to history of economic thought. And I was wondering if you could maybe talk about the disciplining effect of archives, the role of history of economic analysis in the history of economic thought and, and whatnot as advice to, to young people that would like to have a career in economics and devote a part of their time to the history of their discipline. Well, yes, the, the history of economic society is a very interesting, congenial society. I mean, uh, I met people who are very interesting, very, very, would say, devoted to the to the discipline, their practice, but uh, I mean, which sometimes may be a a problem. <laughs> uh, no, I'm going to 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 say why. Because uh, I mean, that's the 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 problem you were mentioning. Uh, are we economists or are we historians? When I say that people are really devoted to their discipline, that they tend to forget one, one of the two uh, aspects. Yeah. So we are historians of economics. So it means that we are economists, but we are also historians. Like in law and economics, it's very yeah. difficult to be uh, to do law in economics because you have to know what law is and you have to be an economist too. Here it's the same thing. You have to. I think that sometimes people lose 
the idea lose the perspective of being an economist and being an historian. So you have mm -hmm. to be both at the same time, which is very difficult. So um, this is, well, I don't know if I succeed. Sometimes probably I fail as the others. Uh, and I think that people should, well, should not forget these two these two aspects. If I have the if I had an advice to give to uh, students who are interested in doing uh, history of economic thought, is trying to maintain the two the two, uh, not forget that they are economists, but not forget that they are doing history history yeah. too. That's fantastic. Uh, I want to thank you very much, Alan, for for uh, taking the time today, and I want to uh, sort of do a pre advertisement for your book on on uh, Buchanan that's going to be coming out and uh, congratulate you again on the uh, award that you've won for the paper, excellent paper on the uh, constructing of a constitutionalist. So, Thank you, Pete. Thank you for having me here. It's a great opportunity. I'm glad to have uh, had the opportunity of this talk with you and talking about Buchanan. It's always a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason, as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.